Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching for It. This episode's been in the pipeline for a little while, and I'm super excited to finally release it, because honestly, I find the question, why is there something rather than nothing, to be just about the most interesting question out there. Granted, it is a bit more abstract than some of the topics from previous episodes, it can't really get more abstract, and however we answer the question, it probably won't bear too heavily on our day-to-day lives, but at the same time, from an existential perspective, from the perspective of trying to understand our place in the universe, I can't think of another question that probes so deeply into the nature of reality. It's a question that, I think as well, only becomes more interesting the more you think about it. When you take a moment to reflect and consider the possibility that maybe there could have just been nothing, when you imagine that there might not have ever been not just your own life or even planet Earth, but space, time, anything, it can feel absolutely baffling that anything exists at all. I mean, if we grant that nothingness was a possibility, that there's a chance that there could have just been nothingness, then why the heck is there anything at all? Why is it the case that anything ever came to exist? Wouldn't it have all been much simpler if there were just nothingness? There are a load of scientists and philosophers who have weighed in on this. Some are just as amazed as me that anything exists at all, but there are also people out there who think that this really isn't such a grand question. There are people who think that there's some kind of mistake lying behind the question, and that it isn't really all that surprising that the world around us exists. Like almost everything that we've spoken about throughout Searching for It, the jury's out. There's no generally agreed upon consensus as to why there's something rather than nothing. So, sorry to disappoint, but I'm not about to turn on the lights and unveil the grand answer to everything. What I'm going to try and do in this episode is untangle some of the confusion surrounding the question, and introduce some of the most popular explanations as to why anything exists. Some from religious folks, some from scientists, some from philosophers, and surprisingly, to begin, some from the British royal family too. In 1883, Queen Victoria wrote a letter to her granddaughter, Princess Victoria of Hesse, and in the letter she wrote... I would earnestly warn against you trying to find out the reason and explanation of everything. To try and find out the reason for everything is very dangerous and leads to nothing but disappointment and dissatisfaction, unsettling your mind and, in the end, making you miserable. Queen Victoria might be right. Some people think that there is no reason and explanation of everything, and if that's the case, then Queen Victoria might be right to say that searching for this answer, in her words, leads to nothing but disappointment and dissatisfaction. But hey, what am I going to do? End this episode here and abandon searching for it entirely? For every Queen Victoria, there are people who do think that today's question does have an answer, and that the answer might actually be pretty important. So, for better or worse, we're going to be emphatically ignoring Queen Victoria's advice. We're going to be searching for the reason and explanation of everything, and to find out why is there something rather than nothing. So to start us on today's journey, we'll be rewinding way back, way before Queen Victoria, all the way back to the turn of the 18th century, where we'll find the first person to pose today's question, a German philosopher called Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. If you haven't studied maths or philosophy, you might not have heard of Leibniz, but even if you haven't, you'll definitely be familiar with his legacy, 
Amongst other things, he's known for coming up with calculus right about the same time as Newton, but getting none of the credit. He helped develop the binary number system that computers use. And most importantly, if you've ever had a German Leibniz biscuit, yeah, they're named after Leibniz too. Well, as a philosopher, Leibniz came up with something that he called the principle of sufficient reason. It sounds like a fancy principle, but it's actually pretty straightforward. It's basically the principle that everything has a reason or a cause. If a tennis ball flies over the net, well, that'll be because someone hit it. If the tide on your local beach changes, that'll be because it's experiencing a stronger or weaker gravitational pull from the moon. And if your telephone starts ringing, that'll be because someone's dialed your number. Applied to everyday things, Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason is pretty obvious. We all know that things don't just pop into existence. If something happens, or if something exists, there'll be a cause or a reason behind it. But it's when we apply the principle of sufficient reason to the universe, not just to our own lives, to planet Earth, or to the Milky Way, but when we apply it to everything that exists, that's when the principle of sufficient reason becomes a little more intriguing. Because if, by talking about the universe, we mean everything that exists, well, what then could cause the universe to exist? This cause would have to lie outside the universe, but if the universe is everything that exists, then nothing can lie outside of the universe. So the universe can have no cause. Well, this raises a puzzle. If the universe can't have a cause, then how on earth did it come about? Or, in other words, why is there something rather than nothing? This was the process that Leibniz followed when he arrived at the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And as I mentioned earlier, he's credited with being the first person to do so. Which sounds pretty weird, because it's such an intriguing question, and such a fundamental question too. It's strange that it took philosophers until the turn of the 18th century to ask why reality exists. But bear in mind, prior to Leibniz, and even after Leibniz came along, most people thought that the answer was pretty clear-cut. See, culturally, we're talking about a time when most people were religious. In Germany at the time Leibniz was around, most people would have been Christian in one form or another. And for these people, the answer is obvious. God created the universe. And even for the small minority of non-religious people, prior to Einstein, the consensus was that the universe is eternal, that things have always existed. And so the question as to why things sprung into existence wouldn't have arisen. It wasn't until Einstein came along and posed his theories of relativity that we realised that the universe isn't infinitely old, that the Big Bang in some sense caused the universe to exist, and it wasn't until then that it's really occurred to us to ask, why did the Big Bang happen in the first place, and why does anything exist at all? It was science that told us that our universe has a point or an origin, the Big Bang, and there are some scientists out there who think that science also holds the answer as to why there is something rather than nothing. Probably the most prominent of these guys, a scientist called Lawrence Krauss, wrote a book about this back in 2012. The book's called A Universe from Nothing. Krauss wrote the book with the intention that it'd be a bit of a checkmate Christians. The thought was that if he could fill in a blank spot in the atheist story of the universe, which is how the universe could spring into existence from nothingness, if he could do that without reference to God, then it'd be one less argument that Christians could throw at him. So, the argument that Krauss gave is that science can describe how a universe can come to exist out of nothingness, 
because, in a nutshell, nothingness is unstable. See, according to Krauss, even nothingness is governed by certain rules, and things can happen within what we might call nothingness. To be specific, if you have a quantum vacuum, a quantum state containing no physical particles, which is what scientists might refer to as nothingness, well, within this vacuum, or within this nothingness, there'll be certain fluctuations whereby quantum particles actually pop in and out of existence. Hence Krauss saying nothingness is unstable. Even within nothingness, you'll still get quantum particles flitting in and out, and therefore you have something arising out of nothing. And let's stop for a moment here. Let's think back to the question at the heart of this. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, has Krauss actually answered this question? This probably depends on how we define nothing. See, if we're running with Krauss's scientific definition of nothingness as a quantum vacuum, a state with lowest possible energy and no physical particles, then sure, Krauss has shown us how something, i.e. quantum particles, can come out of nothing, i.e. a quantum vacuum. But there's a different philosophical definition of nothingness that I think is probably more relevant here. David Albert, a professor of philosophy at Columbia University, pointed out in a scathing review of Krauss's book that when we're talking about nothingness in a philosophical sense, a quantum vacuum just won't do. I mean, sure, by nothingness we're talking about the absence of physical particles, granted, but we're also talking about the absence of the laws of physics, the laws of quantum mechanics that govern the way that the quantum vacuum works. It almost feels like cheating to explain how the universe came out of nothing, when within Krauss's parameters of nothingness, you're granting that there's a quantum vacuum governed by physical laws. Well, that's not true nothingness. What Krauss fails to do, according to the likes of Albert, is explain why the quantum vacuum existed, why there were physical laws that governed the quantum vacuum? Why were the quantum particles able to spring in and out of existence? Why is there anything at all? As Stephen Hawking said, what is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? What gives rise to the physical laws that Krauss believes allowed the universe to come into existence? The problem that Krauss is facing is more or less the same problem that we saw when we looked at Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason. If everything has a cause, then the universe must have a cause. But if the universe has a cause, well, that cause is still a something, so it doesn't explain why there's something rather than nothing. If the universe was caused by fluctuations within a quantum vacuum, then why were there fluctuations in a quantum vacuum rather than nothing? With any causal explanation, it can't give you an answer as to why there's something rather than nothing, because it leaves the original something unexplained. So maybe this just isn't the kind of question that science can answer. This is a point that the philosopher Brian Lefto makes in a really interesting little 10-minute video that I've linked to on the Searching for It website. Lefto points out that causal explanations for everything just won't do, because, as I say, they leave us asking, well... Why did that first cause take place? So according to Lefto, we should be looking elsewhere, not at something that might have caused the universe to exist, but at some other kind of explanation. And where Lefto takes us, and where Leibniz and a number of other philosophers take us too, is towards a religious explanation. So broadly, how does the religious explanation work? Well, it says, 
the universe exists because God brought the universe into existence. Now, to get the obvious objection out of the way, a naive counter-argument might say something like, hey, you're making exactly the same kind of mistake as Krauss. Just as Krauss failed to explain why the random fluctuations in the quantum vacuum existed, we can just as easily ask, where did God come from? It might seem that the religious explanation is just another causal explanation dressed up in religious robes. And there is a point to be made here. If God created the universe, then God is still a something, so we can still ask why something exists rather than nothing. But if this was such a quick and easy counter-argument to make, if this were a surefire slam dunk for the atheist, you wouldn't have so many religious thinkers around today. But you do. There are still a large number of religious philosophers and scientists around, and there are a number of ways in which they might respond. And I think one of the most popular responses made by religious thinkers often starts off by making a careful distinction between two different things between things that have contingent existence and things that have necessary existence. So to start with contingent things, these are things that do exist, but it's possible that in another reality they might never have existed. So you and I would both be contingent beings. Sure, we happen to exist, but if our parents had chosen another partner, or if they'd conceived a child at just a slightly different point in time, a different person would have been born and he'd never have existed. And if you take a look around you, everything you'll see will probably be contingent. Whatever device you're listening on would never have existed if it hadn't been invented, and whatever clothes you're wearing wouldn't have been made if a meteor had hit the Earth 1,000 years ago and wiped out the human race. Contingent things do exist, but they might not have done if things had turned out differently. On the other hand, some philosophers think that there are certain things that have necessary existence, which means that they couldn't possibly not have existed. However the universe had turned out, they'd still exist. So one example might be the abstract concept of numbers. Some people think that no matter how things had turned out, there would always have been the abstract concept of numbers. There would always have been a natural distinction between 1, 2 and 3. And you can probably see where this is going. A number of religious philosophers, Lefto and Leibniz included, think that God has necessary existence. Now, there are a load of different ways that you might try to argue that God has necessary existence. And to be honest, it'd probably make enough content for another podcast entirely, let alone a separate episode, so I'm not going to dive too deeply into the religious debate for now. But the reason I bring it up, and the reason I think it's worth mentioning, is there aren't many satisfying answers out there to the question as to why anything exists at all. And to give credit where it's due, at least the religious arguments are able to give a complete answer. See, if we were to agree with the likes of Lefto, that not only does God exist, but that God exists necessarily, and that God simply couldn't have not existed, then this dissolves the question as to why something exists rather than nothing. The question simply disappears. If God exists necessarily, and God is something then something must have always existed. It wouldn't be possible for there to have simply been nothing. So there's our answer. Something must have existed, and there couldn't have been nothing. Personally, I'm of the opinion that atheists and agnostics shouldn't be too quick to think that you can obliterate thousands of years of religious thought with simple pre-packaged soundbites like, oh, well, what caused God then? But at the same time, the religious arguments in favour of a God who exists necessarily shouldn't induce religious thinkers to lean back in their armchair and think they've solved the matter once and for all. 
Though there aren't too many, other answers to the question have been given, and there are some non-religious philosophers out there who think that there could be an answer to the grand question of existence that doesn't involve God. To see what these non-religious explanations might look like, we're going to leave Leibniz behind in 18th century Germany and take a trip to Oxford in the year 1998. It's here that we'll find the brilliant British philosopher Derek Parfit, who had just written a great article called Why This? Why Anything? Again, I've listed this article on the recommended reading page of the Searching for It website, and what Parfit basically does is map out some of the different ways that the non-religious among us might try to forge an answer as to why anything exists. Parfit doesn't stringently defend one particular explanation, but he does, I guess, show how an explanation could be given and describe the different forms that this explanation could take. So, to follow Parfit here, and to see what kinds of philosophical, non-religious answers we might give as to why reality exists, let's follow the process that Parfit lays out in his article. So, to begin, Parfit asks us to pause and simply reflect on the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, when we frame the question in this way, it sounds as if we're giving two different possibilities that there could have been something, or that there could have been nothing. But Parfit points out that when we examine the question a bit more closely, that kind of distinction feels a little simplistic. Because actually, within the category of something, there are lots of different ways that reality could have turned out. As well as the possibility that nothing ever existed, and as well as the possibility that just our universe exists, There are also people out there who believe in the existence of a multiverse, in which case there might be a great many universes out there. And of those who think that our universe may just be one of many within a multiverse, there are also a few who think that there are actually an infinite number of other universes out there. Parvit calls each one of these different possibilities cosmic possibilities. They're all of the different ways in which reality could have turned out. You know, there could have been one universe, a multiverse of many universes, a multiverse of an infinite number of universes, or maybe just nothingness. So these are some of the different ways in which reality could have panned out. Now the next step in Parfit's process is to ask, well, which one of these cosmic possibilities actually obtained? Which cosmic possibility are we living in right now? Well, we know that we're not living in the nothingness reality where nothing ever existed. We all know that we exist, so we know that at least something must have existed. But beyond that, we don't really know. We might be living in the only universe in existence, we might be living in a multiverse consisting of a great many universes, or we might be living in a multiverse containing an infinite number of universes, we don't know. But at least we've discovered something. We've discovered that there is at least one universe out there, which is our universe, and that the cosmic possibility where there are no universes, just nothingness, didn't turn out to be true. So, why is this the case? Why is there at least one universe, rather than nothing? According to Parfit, there are basically two different kinds of answers that we can give to this question. The first kind we'll come on to look at a bit closer towards the end of this episode. The first answer is that our universe is just a brute fact. If it's a brute fact, then, you know, I guess it is what it is. There's no cause, no explanation, it just exists and that's that. In some sense, you might want to say that the brute fact explanation isn't really an explanation at all. It just says that there is no explanation, period. 
But Parfit thinks there's also a second, more concrete kind of answer that we can give. Maybe there's a real reason why something exists rather than nothing. And if there is such a reason, Parfit suggests that this reason might consist in some kind of special feature of the cosmic reality that we're living in, a special feature that makes our cosmic reality more likely to have obtained than any other cosmic possibility. Let's take a step back for a moment and look at a parallel example. Imagine that you enter the lottery. If you're anything like me, you'll buy your ticket and have this overwhelming feeling that today's going to be your day. You're going to be a millionaire and you start thinking of all the different things you could buy. Well, if you're anything like me, then you're looking at this in the wrong way. The odds of winning the national lotto in the UK are something like 50 million to one. So if you enter, you're probably not going to win. Well, let's say you enter one week, and you do win. Wow, you won the lottery, where the odds were stacked against you at 50 million to 1, what luck! And the question is, why did you win? Well, obviously, it was luck. There's no reason to think otherwise, nobody was going to rig the lottery to make you win. Nobody would care to do that. You just got lucky and that's that, it is what it is. Okay, well, now let's take that example and modify it slightly. Let's say that you're not just an everyday average Joe entering the lottery. Let's say that you're Mr. Lottery. You're the guy who invented the lottery. And not just that, but it's the 50th anniversary of the National Lottery, and they're drawing today's numbers in your honour, the guy who created the lottery and made so many people's dreams come true. Now, let's say again that you win the lottery. And again, let's ask, why did you win? Well, this time it feels a little different. Sure, it could have just been chance, but the difference is that now there's a special feature. The special feature is that you're the guy who created the lottery. So it seems a little fishy that you're also going to be the one going home with a £10 million jackpot. In fact, in this case, it seems pretty likely that the special feature explains why the outcome obtained. You likely won the lottery because you're the guy who created the lottery. And in all likelihood, it was probably rigged. And Parfit thinks that a similar kind of thought might apply to our own reality. If we're able to identify some kind of special feature in our cosmic reality, then in just the same way that the special feature explained why Mr. Lottery won the lottery, perhaps the special feature might explain why our cosmic possibility obtained. To put this in other words, if our reality was just some run-of-the-mill reality with let's say, 58 different universes comprising our multiverse, and none of these universes contained anything special, then sure, maybe our universe is just a brute fact, maybe there's no explanation lying behind it, just like there'd be no particular explanation lying behind your everyday Joe winning the lottery. But if there's something particularly special about our cosmic reality, something that makes you sit up and say, hey, reality didn't have to be this way, and it's pretty incredible that it is this way, then maybe that special feature could go some way to explaining why our cosmic possibility exists, rather than there just being nothingness. So now the question becomes, does our universe have one of these special features? Parfit doesn't really argue with conviction one way or the other, but he does suggest some special features that a universe might have. For example, imagine that there's a universe governed by the most elegant fundamental laws imaginable. In this case, in just the same way that it was pretty fishy that Mr. Lottery went and won the lottery, 
then perhaps it's also pretty fishy that this universe just so happens to have the most elegant fundamental laws imaginable, rather than just some run-of-the-mill, boring, basic fundamental laws. And perhaps this universe might exist because of some cosmic need for elegant fundamental laws. For another special feature, consider for a moment the possibility that we're living in a multiverse containing an infinite number of universes, where each universe contains every one of the possible ways in which the universe could have turned out. So, in this universe, you might have some boring desk job, but there's another universe out there where you're a rock star, another universe where you're the president of the USA, and another universe where you got knocked down by a bus at the age of seven. It's a working theory, and some scientists really think that we might be living in this kind of multiverse. But if this turned out to be the case, if there were an infinite number of universes, this might seem pretty fishy too. You know, there could have just been some random number of universes. There could be 6, 57, 249 universes. But there's not. In fact, there's the most number of universes that there could possibly be. And in just the same way that you might think it more likely that Mr Lottery's win was rigged rather than him just getting lucky, perhaps you might think there being an infinitely large multiverse also isn't something that would likely happen by chance. Of course, we don't know if this is true. For all we know, there might be one, two, three, four, or any different number of universes out there. But if there were an infinite number of universes, this would seem like a special feature, and maybe our reality could have arisen out of some cosmic need for reality to be the largest it could possibly be. Both of those suggestions, that a universe could have come to exist out of some cosmic need for elegant fundamental laws, and that an infinitely large multiverse might have come to exist out of some cosmic need for reality to be the largest it could be, they're both pretty or, or completely speculative, and to my knowledge neither of them have received serious defence. But there's a philosopher out there, a Canadian philosopher called John Leslie, who thinks that our universe might have a different kind of special feature. According to Leslie, we shouldn't gloss over the fact that there's something very special indeed about our own universe. The fact that conscious beings exist. Conscious beings who are capable of achieving happiness, creating great works of art, playing and having fun. In other words, there are conscious beings who are capable of living lives of great moral value. And not only that, but the emergence of intelligent life actually seems like something of a lottery win in itself. Parfit points out that all of the different starting conditions that our universe could have had, less than one in a billion billion of these starting conditions would allow for intelligent life to evolve. Well, this seems extraordinary indeed, and according to Leslie, this is a special feature of our reality. Of all the different cosmic possibilities that could have obtained, not many of them would allow for a universe capable of hosting intelligent life that can lead lives of great moral value. So, here, we're faced with one of two explanations. Our reality simply is what it is, it's just a brute fact. Or, our reality is this way simply because it's good. Maybe our reality came into existence because of some cosmic need for moral value. Now, granted, it's an alien concept, and if you feel like you can't quite wrap your head around what Leslie's trying to say, well, don't worry, you're probably not missing anything. It is a very original suggestion, and it's meant to sound a little strange. You know, in everyday life things happen because there was a reason for them to happen, or because they were caused in some way. 
but things don't tend to happen out of some cosmic need for moral value. If you manage to save the life of a child who otherwise would have died, well yes, this is a morally valuable thing to do, but the child's life wasn't saved because of some cosmic need for moral value. The child's life was saved because you saw them and you chose to help them. But according to Leslie, just because we don't fully understand the way in which a need for moral value could induce things to happen, or for things to exist, it doesn't mean it's not possible. So long as we accept that our cosmic reality is, on balance, net positive, and that it contributes moral value, then as far as Leslie's concerned, his theory gets off the ground and it's just as good as any other theory. So to briefly recap then, there are a group of philosophers who think that if our universe contained some kind of special feature, the kind of special feature that wouldn't just come about by chance, then that special feature could explain why reality exists rather than nothing. And then beyond the likes of Parfit and Leslie, you've also got Krauss's scientists who think that the instability of nothingness explains why the universe came about, and the religious camp who think that a necessary god can explain the existence of reality. But there's a fourth and final group of philosophers that we'll look at today who have their own quite different way of approaching the question as to why anything exists. And as far as I can tell, it seems to me that this final camp, at least in the philosophy world, might be growing into the dominant group on this matter. These guys are what you'd call the rejectionists. They reject the very question itself. See, for the rejectionists, we actually make a mistake simply by asking why is there something rather than nothing. In fact, there's no answer that could even be given. The question is unanswerable. A few people have made this kind of argument, but one guy who I think made it quite well was the physicist Sean Carroll. So Carroll has a bunch of YouTube videos, podcasts and the like, but he also made a post on his Preposterous Universe blog, where he asks us to consider a few why questions. So take the classic one, why did the chicken cross the road? Now of course this question makes sense, there's nothing wrong with the question. It makes sense because we live in a world where chickens exist, where roads exist, and where chickens are capable of crossing roads. But Carol points out, if we were living in a world where chickens and roads didn't exist, well then the question would no longer make sense. The point Carol's making is that why questions don't exist within a vacuum, they exist within a wider explanatory context. And in order for why questions to make sense, they have to be asked within that explanatory context. So without the wider context within which chickens and roads exist, it wouldn't make sense to ask why the chicken crossed the road. But when we ask why anything exists at all, why reality exists, there's no wider explanatory context from which to ask the question. Reality covers everything that exists. There's no external vantage point from which we can try to figure out why anything exists. So there's no perspective from which we can answer the question. With everyday questions like why did the chicken cross the road or why did you order pizza, there's a bigger picture from which you can say, well, here are the reasons why. But when it comes to the grand question of the existence of everything, there's no bigger picture, there's nowhere from which to answer the question. The philosopher Stephen Law, in another video that I've listed on the Searching For It website, he gives another couple of good examples as well. He points out, for example, that if we were standing in Iceland, we could ask, what's north of here? But if we were standing on the North Pole, we could no longer ask what's north of here, 
because the concept north refers to your position relative to the North Pole. So it doesn't make sense to use the concept north when you're on the North Pole. Equally, if you're in Iceland again, then it might make sense to ask what time is it? But if you are on the sun, it would no longer make sense to ask what time is it? Because the concept of telling the time is only coherent when you're talking about your position relative to the position of the sun. That's what we do when we tell the time. So if you're on the sun, there can be no time of day, and the concept of telling the time doesn't make sense, and nor does it make sense to ask what time it is on the sun. The point is that why questions are, you might want to say, delicate. You can't throw why questions here and there and expect them to make sense wherever they land. They only make sense at a local level, within a certain explanatory context. So when you try to apply the concept why to a universal level, and ask why anything exists at all, there is no wider concept, so the why question simply breaks down and doesn't make sense. Now, admittedly, this isn't a satisfying answer to the question. Actually, Brian Lefto points out it's not really fair to say that this is an answer at all. Really, what the rejectionists are saying is that there is no answer to the question. It's unanswerable. It's a bad question. All we can say is that the universe just is. It's there, and that's that. And for the rejectionists, that's fine. As Neil deGrasse Tyson once said, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. And it's not, just because you want to know why reality exists. The universe doesn't have to give you a reason. Heck, the universe doesn't have to have a reason. As we touched upon earlier when we were talking about Parfit, some people use the term brute fact to describe the universe. It's a fact that the universe exists, but that's all there is to it. There's no reason, no cause, no explanation. Bertrand Russell famously made this point back in a radio debate in 1948. He said, I should say that the universe is just there, and that's all. Russell's not saying that we don't know the explanation as to why anything exists. He's saying that there really is no explanation. Reality is just a brute fact. For me, I came into this episode with the biggest philosophical itch. It just seemed so bewildering that the universe could have come into existence when there could have just been nothingness. And it felt like such a bewildering thought merited a bewildering explanation. Now, the brute fact answer certainly isn't the bewildering explanation I was looking for. It feels like the damp squib of explanations. The great existential anticlimax. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Maybe Carol and Law were right to say that there's something wrong with the question. Maybe there is no answer. Maybe our existence, the existence of our universe, and the existence of anything that might lie outside of our universe, is just a wonderful, beautiful coincidence. And maybe that's all there is to it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Searching For It. I've plugged the recommended reading page on the Searching For It website enough throughout this episode, but really there are some fantastic books, articles and YouTube videos out there that tackle this question, that do a much better job than I was able to do in this episode. And if you're interested in learning more, I'd really recommend checking them out. As ever, if you'd like to support the show, leaving a rating and a review is a great way of boosting the show's placement and getting it out there to new listeners. And if you'd like to pledge a small monthly amount to Searching For It to help keep it running, you can do so on the show's Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Otherwise, 
Thanks for listening to this episode, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.